Let's open our Bibles to First uh, Kings, and we're going to look at chapter 17 tonight, but we're going to back up just a hair to the last section of chapter 16, and there's a reason for that. Or at least there should be a reason for that. And there is, believe it or not, there is a reason for this. <laughs> All right. Well, Father, we just come before you. We, don't, we want to thank you uh, for the word of God and thank you, Lord, how you instruct us in it. And Lord, open this passage to us, Lord, as we just uh, consider the life of uh, Elijah, his beginnings, and certainly the the things that were going on in Israel at the time, Lord, how it's challenging, Lord, because there's many um, parallels, I think, in our own country uh, with what was happening in Israel. And so, Lord, open our hearts and, and just speak to us, Lord. Uh, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Uh, before we get into chapter 17, I just want to review and, and read uh, verses 29 through the end of the chapter of chapter 16, because in this section here, we're going to see the, the, why the Lord, uh, or at least the beginnings of why God sent Elijah to Ahab. Why did he send him to rebuke Ahab and the nation of Israel and um, we're going to find out pretty quickly in this short passage at the end of chapter 16. And it's no surprise to us because we know that uh, Israel had been struggling with idolatry. Uh, the northern tribes and the southern tribe, tribes, they, they all struggled with it. But there comes a time when God sends a prophet to Israel. When he sends a prophet to uh, any place in Israel or in Judah, it was often because they were not following the Lord. They weren't listening to God. And so therefore, he's got to send someone to speak to them. Have you ever experienced that where sometimes if your heart is closed off and maybe you're in, involved in something and you're, you're, maybe you're even completely oblivious to it. There might be something that's been going on and, and you're exhibiting this thing and, and other people know that you're involved in, in whatever it is and, and you don't seem to really, you've kind of shut off. You're, maybe you're angry with God and you, you know, the ceiling is like brass, the heavens are like brass and your heart is just hardened. And there comes a point when God will send somebody else. If I'm not listening, he will send a friend. Maybe a, someone that I really trust in Christ, maybe an older brother in Christ or an older sister in Christ, or, um, and, and just to come in and to talk with you and encourage you and hopefully not be the kind of Christian that beats you over the head, but one who comes lovingly, and sometimes that loving rebuke is what we need, because I sometimes need that. Sometimes I need to be exposed. If, I, if my heart is not willing to listen then God, in his loving kindness, will make sure that I'm made aware of what's going on so that I have an opportunity to turn from that thing. And so when God sends a prophet to a town or sends a prophet to speak to a man or to a group of people, it's usually never a good thing. It usually means that judgment is coming. Not always, but most of the time. He's, God is warning 
of impending judgment because of rebellion and idolatry. And Jeremiah the prophet is a good example of how the Lord would intervene to warn his people. And, and, and before we read this uh, passage in chapter 16, I just want to share with you something that is uh, in Jeremiah chapter 11. And I'm going to read to you just from verse 7 through 13. But it's the Lord speaking to Judah and those of Jerusalem and he's speaking to them because they have gotten to the point where they have been involved in gross idolatry and they weren't listening. They weren't listening. And notice the plea of God in verse 7. And this is really the plea that we're going to find in Elijah's heart as well. Because Jeremiah said, For I earnestly exhorted your fathers, and here is God speaking to Judah in Jerusalem, I have earnestly exhorted your fathers in the day that I brought them up out of the land of Egypt, until this day, notice, rising early and exhorting, saying, Obey my voice. For some reason, we just don't want to obey God's voice. We want to follow our own feelings, or we want to follow the narrative of the day, whatever it is, wherever the, the mob mentality is, uh, people find comfort in the mob mentality, and very rarely is the mob correct. Most often, the mob is wrong. <laughs> and sometimes you can be caught up in a mob and not even know what's, what their beef is. Why are you guys all uptight? And sometimes they don't even know. They're just angry about something. Sometimes there's a, a reason, a specific one. But notice what God goes on and says to prophet Jeremiah. Yet they did not, and he's speaking of Judah and Jerusalem again. Yet they did not obey or incline their ear, but everyone followed the dictates of his own evil heart. And therefore I will bring upon them all the words of this covenant which I commanded them to do, but which they have not done. And the Lord said to me, a conspiracy has been found among the men of Judah and among the inhabitants of Jerusalem. They've turned back to the iniquities of their forefathers who refused to hear my words. And they have gone after other gods to serve them. The house of Israel and the house of Judah have broken my covenant, which I made with their fathers. Therefore, thus says the Lord, and here's where the hammer drops. Behold, I will surely... Bring calamity on them, which they will not be able to escape. And though they cry out to me, I will not listen to them. And then the cities of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, they'll go and they will cry out to the gods to whom they offer incense, but they will not save them at all in the time of their trouble. For according to the number of your cities were your gods, O Judah, and according to the number of the streets of Jerusalem, you have set up altars to that shameful thing, meaning these, these images of Asherah, these wooden images and images of Baal and many other things. They've set up altars to that shameful thing, altars to burn incense to Baal. And we're going to see that God is going to be preparing Elijah for the, the fight of his life. Because now God's going to send a prophet to expose and come against all the idolatry in Israel, and specifically Ahab and Jezebel. You've heard about Ahab and Jezebel. And Jezebel was, uh, she was from the area up in Phoenicia, up in modern-day Lebanon. That's where she hailed from. And so that was her hometown. And she was completely engrossed on idolatry and led her husband so easily into it as well. And so now Elijah is going to be the one to come against not only them, but the whole nation that have given themselves over to this idolatry of Baal. 
In fact, they never ceased to do it, beginning from Jeroboam up until now. They've continued that same vein. And now, because God loves them, he's going to confront them. And he's going to challenge them. And don't you love that about God? See, if it were me, I would just say, is that really what you want? And the people would say, yes, that's what we want. We don't want you, God. We want a God that feels good to us. We want a Jesus that makes us feel comfortable. We want a Jesus that allows us to continue in our homosexual um, relationships. We want a God, we want a Jesus that allows us and supports our uh, extramarital affairs. We want a, a Jesus that supports all of our pronouns and all of our, all of our messed up head stuff. And God says, and if, and if it were me, I would say, okay, have at it. <laughs> and I probably would never turn back. I'd just let you go off into the ditch. But such is the heart of God. He is not that way. Aren't you glad? Because we're sinful flesh, because we're born with a sin nature, God doesn't allow us to go easily. You're going to have to trip over him to get to hell. <laughs> and he will intervene at different times in your life. And he did that in my life as an unbeliever. He intervened so many times, and I'm so glad that he did because one of those times I finally gave it up. I finally said, okay, Lord, I surrender. And he softened my heart so much so that I, I, I realized what I was doing was wrong. And, he, and I just came into agreement with him and became saved. So let's look at now verse 29 in chapter 16 down through the end of chapter 16. And this will give us an idea of why God is sending Elijah. So notice what it says. It says, in the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah. Remember, we've got two different nations really happening and so the Bible tells us who's ruling in the, in the northern part and who's, who's reigning in the southern part. And oftentimes there's deaths and, and then somebody else takes over. And so what we're seeing here is a history of these kings and it staggers quite a bit. So in the 38th year of King Asa of Judah in the south, Ahab, the son of Amri, became king over Israel and notice Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria for 22 years. And what an amazing thing that God would allow this evil man to continue for 22 years. I've never understood that. But God is infinite in his wisdom. And sometimes he allows the, the godly man to be his life to be shortened. And he allows the ungodly to prosper for several years. I don't, I don't get it. But I know that God is sovereign. I know that God is sovereign. And if you remember, it was Omri, Ahab's father. He was the one who bought the hill in Samaria, this, this mount of land in, in Samaria. And the owner of the hill was called Shemer. And so Omri, Ahab's son, he bought that land and he named it after the original owner. Instead of calling it Shemer, he called it Samaria, which is very similar to the name of the original. And this became the capital of the northern ten tribes. And it was impregnable, just like Jerusalem. It, was, it had to be approached from all sides going up. And so it was very difficult to come against and very easy to defend. And so... Notice in verse 30, it says, Now Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. And it came to pass as though it had, as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, 
that he took as wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and he went and served Baal and worshipped him. So really, it's business as usual for the northern ten tribes. They've learned to do this from their beginning, from Jeroboam. But now this woman, this Jezebel, who again was born up in the area of Sidon, modern-day Lebanon now, her father was Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and they were idol worshipers. And so she comes and she encourages Ahab to continue in this idolatry. And, and you know what? What I find interesting is that even Solomon struggled with this. After David had passed away, Solomon himself, who was a wonderful king and probably was the golden age of Israel. There's never been a time like Solomon enjoyed in his 40 years of reign. But toward the latter part of his reign, he struggled with idolatry. Remember, it tells us in Kings, in this very book, in chapter 11, it says, Solomon clung to these in love. He, he went after all of these wives of these different nations that God had told him not to do. He was, he was supposed to just have one wife, but now he's got 700 wives and 300 concubines And his wives, it tells us, turned his heart away because each one of them from these different nations all had their favorite gods. And so now he's got the international house of idolatry or the international house of pancakes or the international (laughs) house of idolatry right in his own Jerusalem. And he didn't turn from it. And and, um, the Lord rebuked him for it. But it can happen. Even to a king like Solomon, who the Bible says was the wisest man on the earth. And yet even the wisest man on the earth, if he's not careful, can be tripped up. And that just proves and goes to show you that we need to walk with Jesus moment by moment, day by day. We can't let our guard down because the enemy is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He doesn't need any new tricks. The old tricks work very well. And he's only got a couple. He's got a couple of them. And he uses them, and they're so effective, especially against the natural man. The natural man is, is, is like a sitting duck to Satan's devices. But the spiritual man can fall too if he's not careful. The spiritual woman can fall if she's not careful. That's why Jesus said, abide in me. Abiding means staying with. We we, we can't depart. We can't let a day go by. And so Solomon's heart was led away just like these other kings. And yet, what was the warning from the scripture for all the kings? And you've heard me quote this scripture so much, and it is a really important one. If you don't have this at least memorized, write down the, this phrase because you will find that you will, you'll come back to this often because it was the root problem. And it's in Deuteronomy chapter 20, verses 16 through 18. It's, it's God's warning to his people. All of them, Judah and Jerusalem, everybody, all of Israel. But notice what he says, again, Deuteronomy 20, verse 16 through 18. And this is what he told them before they even came into the promised land. He said, but of the cities of these peoples, which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance, you shall let nothing that breathes remain alive, but you shall utterly destroy them. Yes, God was going to use the Israelites as his hammer of judgment against those seven nations of Canaan because of their hundreds of years of idolatry. And finally, 
It had come to pass where God is like, enough is enough. I've given them a lot of rope. I've given them much space to repent. But they are not repenting. They're not turning from it. And because I care about them and I care about everyone who's watching, I have to judge them. And I'm going to use my own people to do it. And this is hard to hear. But notice, he says, But you shall utterly destroy them, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, the Jebusite, just as the Lord your God has commanded you. And here's the reason why. It's not just because God is a bigot and he doesn't like other people. It's not just because God chose Israel and the Jews as his own special people and everybody else not so much. No, it has nothing to do with that. Here is the only reason God is doing this. Verse 18, lest they teach you to do according to all their abominations which they have done for their gods, lowercase g, thank you very much. (laughs) And you sin against the Lord your God. That's what it was all about. He wanted to keep them pure. He wanted them to be a witness. After all, he gave them the very oracles of God. I mean, these are Jewish prophets. It's a Jewish book, most of it. So that's the reason why. And then now look in verse 32, back in our text here, in verse 16 of 1 Kings. Notice, so now uh, Ahab sets up an altar for Baal now in the temple of Baal. So Baal's got his own temple now which he had built in Samaria, and Ahab made a wooden image. And Ahab did more to provoke, notice this, put a star by this or underline it, Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. (laughs) Amazing. Everyone who was before him, this guy did even more. So God was not very pleased with him. And so we're going to skip over verse 34 because we're going to go right on. So what does God do? God sends a prophet. Ahab is not listening. He's totally given over. His wife is encouraging him. And now he's got no spine, no backbone to stand up and say, nope, this is not right. I'm sorry, Jezebel. No, he goes along with it and continues so finally, when a, when a conscience is seared and when somebody's not listening and they're not watching and they're not hearing, God will send somebody and he sends Elijah. And we see the beginning of his ministry here in chapter 17. But before we get into this, um, there's some things we've got to understand about Elijah. Because Elijah and John the Baptist, their, their lives were somewhat intertwined by prophecy. And I think you'll know this before we get too, fur- too much further in here, because before John the Baptist's death, before John the Baptist was murdered by Herod Antipas, Jesus said the following concerning him. And it's recorded for us in Matthew 11. And uh, Jesus was speaking to a multitude concerning John the Baptist. And notice what he said, because we have to understand this uh, idea of Elijah and John the Baptist, because there's some really interesting parallels in their lives, biblically as well. But Jesus said, as they departed, and again, this was before John was um, murdered, martyred, and they departed, and Jesus began to say to the multitudes concerning John, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? When you went out to John, what did you go to see? A reed shaken by the wind, but what did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments. Indeed, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses, but what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes. 
I say to you, and more than a prophet, for this is he of whom it is written, and here he's quoting from Malachi chapter 3, Behold, I will send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. And that's who John the Baptist was. He was that messenger to prepare the way before Christ's ministry would begin. And assuredly, I say to you, Jesus said, among those born among women, there has not arisen one greater than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And here's the verse. And if you are willing to receive it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So is he really John the Baptist? One of the most notable, and I, I'm, I'm leaving you hanging there for a minute. One of the most notable prophets of the Old Testament is Elijah. And we see in the Mount of Transfiguration, remember in Matthew 17, now this event happens after John the Baptist is martyred. Because What I just read to you was in Matthew chapter 11. Matthew 14 is when John the Baptist is killed. And now in Matthew 17, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up into the mountain. He's transfigured before them. And again, this happens after John the Baptist is dead. Remember that because it says, After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and went up into a high mountain. He was transfigured before them. And we all know this. And remember, and I'm just going to paraphrase here, Uh, Peter gets really excited because he sees Moses and Elijah. Yes, Moses from the Old Testament and Elijah, the one we're talking about or getting ready to talk about now. And he's there talking with Jesus and his disciples are sleeping and they wake up and they see that he's talking to them and they're all excited. And Peter, of course, is the one who says, let's Let's get three Coleman tents and build them right here and let's all have you guys. And, and of course, he was wrong putting the, those guys on the same level as Christ, which is not a good thing to do. And then the, the Lord himself, God the Father, comes this, and overshadows them in a cloud. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Uh, and then afterward, when they came down from the mountain, his disciples asked him, notice this, and remember, John has already been killed And his disciples, having, you know, Peter, James, and John, just saw Elijah, okay, on the mountain with Moses and Jesus transfigured in a different form, glowing, and I mean, the whole nine yards, and it was an awesome sight. They were blown away. But his disciples asked him, saying, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And Jesus answered and said to them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah has already come. And they did not know him, but did to him whatsoever they wished. Likewise, the Son of Man is also about to suffer at their hands. And then verse 13 says, Then the disciples understood that he spoke to them of John the Baptist. So is John the Baptist coming first, or is he coming later? Well, both. And I'll explain why. And they were likely confused because... John the Baptist resembled Elijah. John the Baptist wore camels, a clothed in camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist. And in 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 8, it tells us the same thing about Elijah, that he was a hairy man wearing a leather belt around his waist. So very similar in appearance. 
But John the Baptist came in the spirit and power of Elijah. Do you understand? John the Baptist came in the spirit and power of Elijah, but was not Elijah himself. In fact, remember when Gabriel came and spoke to Zacharias, John the Baptist's father, when he was in the temple before he was born, before John was born, the angel said to him, don't be afraid, Zacharias, for your prayer has been heard. And he goes on and talks about John, how he would be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. But then he says something in verse 17, he will also go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. So now we understand in context that he came before Christ in the spirit and the power of Elijah. But in Malachi 4, it tells us that, um, behold, I will send, and this is Malachi 4, verse 5, behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. What do you think that is? The second coming. In that tribulation period, before Jesus will come back, he will send Elijah the prophet, the, the real Elijah the prophet, the one that they saw on the Mount of Transfiguration. That Elijah. John came in the spirit and power of Elijah, but Malachi tells us after the fact, way after the fact, that, or I'm, I'm sorry, he tells us that he's going to come before the great and dread, dreadful day of the Lord, which speaks of a very end time event that hasn't even happened yet. So John will come in the spirit and the power of Elijah. And Elijah himself will also come before Jesus' second coming. We believe that this Elijah, the one that, was, that we're talking about now in chapter 17, the same Elijah that was killed, or I'm sorry, that, uh, um, that, that we saw on the Mount of Transfiguration, excuse me, and also perhaps these two witnesses in Revelation 11, Remember in Revelation 11, in the halfway through the tribulation period, there's going to be two witnesses? It's very likely that they're going to be Moses and Elijah. They do similar miracles. So he is going to come a second time, and it's yet future to us. So now in 1 Kings chapter 7, we'll see the Lord using him to proclaim a drought throughout the land due to Israel's sins. We'll also see the Lord provide for Elijah in some really unusual ways. And, and this really encourages me because God's arm is not short. His arm is not short. His strength is not short. God's ability is not lessened in any way. And I think as we read this, we're going to see some really interesting things. Notice in verse 1 it says, And Elijah... The Tishbite of the inhabitants of Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain except these years, except at my word. And so now we see God bringing judgment uh, upon, or, or getting their attention anyway, and he's telling Ahab this. And Elijah, his name means God is Yahweh. Or God is Jehovah. And Tishbite literally means captivity. And this is an inhabitant of Tishba in Gilead. And the exact location is not known, but we know where Gilead is. If you were looking at a map of Israel, and you had the Sea of Galilee, and then the Jordan River, and then the Dead Sea, over on the eastern side of 
the Jordan River is a mountain range, and that is called Gilead. And that's where Elijah was born, and that was the place where he grew up and came from. So one of the meanings of this word Gilead is someone who is called a, also a, someone who is called a Gadite. Remember the tribe of Gad? Gad, Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh? Remember them? And they settled. When Israel came into the land, do you remember what happened? They're all standing there at the Jordan River, about ready to go over westward into the promised land. And these three tribes looked at the land over on the east side of the Jordan River and said, you know, this looks pretty good. I know God said that that's a land flowing with milk and honey, but you know what? Our cows are really liking this deep, lush grass, and they're liking all this stuff over here. You know, let's settle over here. And these three tribes decided to settle there, and Moses, hearing from God, says, listen, if you guys are going to settle over here, you've got to make sure that you get your brothers installed in their locations before you come back and settle here, because otherwise they'd be copping out and letting them fight these battles. And God says, oh, no, if you want this second... If you want this second place, I, I want to give you the, the very best place, but if you want this second best place, you have to go in and help your brothers conquer the land first, and then you can come back and inhabit those lands. And so they agreed. They agreed to it. Now, the problem with this is, you know, when we look at, the, and again, I, I'm probably making a big deal out of this, but I think there's a lot in names. And when you look at Tishbite, and, 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 it, and it means, you know, captivity, or excuse me, um, Tishbite means captivity, and now Gilead uh, literally means um, uh, is someone who is from Gad. I started putting two and two together, and I thought about what happened in Numbers 32, because that's what happened. They decided to settle on the eastern side of the, the, of the Jordan River instead of going into the Promised Land on the western side. And why is that a big deal? Because they were compromising. God wanted to give them the very best. They chose second or third best. And it never bodes well when we scorn the Lord's best for us. When we choose to do something else, when he says, I want you to do this. If you do this, I'm going to really bless you. It's going to be great. I know it doesn't seem like it right now, but you'll have to trust me. So then there requires faith. And then if we follow through, we are going to get blessed. But these people decided no. And the reason I bring this up is because when Israel first, when the northern ten tribes went into captivity, the first ones that, they were, that were picked off were those ones on the Reuben and Gad and half-tribe of Manasseh on the eastern side of the Jordan River. They were the first ones to be taken to captivity. And I don't think that's any um, coincidence they made that choice, I'm going to compromise, I'm going to be in this other place, and I'm going to be in this place where my brethren aren't going to be able to defend me because we got this big valley and this river going through it, but we like this other place, and God allowed them to do it, but it brought them into great trouble, and it got them into a lot of trouble. But I love what James says, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights. He wanted to give them the very best. They chose second or third best. Remember that. Always be obedient to God and doing the one thing and allowing him to take you into the very best thing because when we settle for something less or something that's not what he wanted or, or the very best for us, then we are going to be in trouble. That's somewhere down the line. We're just going to dry up. So notice it says in verse 1 there, there shall not be dew nor rain these years except at my hand and or at my word. And, and 
um, Elijah's word was really God's word, okay? So it's really not just his word. He, he knows that too, but he is being directed by God to say, there's not going to be any rain unless it's at my word, which he obviously means God's word. But who controls the rain? Because here's the problem. Baal, this Phoenician deity, was also considered the god of the storm. He was a god of fertility. And so what we see here is we're going to see a matchup between God, Jehovah God, and Baal, who is supposed to be the god of the storm. Well, if your god, Baal, is god of the storm, then bring on the rain. But when God says rain ain't happening because of your sin, guess what? It's not going to happen. So you're already pitting these two gods together. One's a false god, and the one is the true and living god. And this kind of withholding rain as a penalty for hypocrisy and judgment is all throughout the New Testament, and all throughout the Old Testament, excuse me. And so, verse 2, Then the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Get away from here. So here he was speaking to Ahab, telling him this message probably over on the uh, western side there of the Jordan in Samaria. And so God tells him, get away from here and turn eastward and hide by the brook Cherith, which flows into the Jordan. And so he, he goes to this other place, and this, this river is actually on the eastern side of the Jordan River, somewhere just a little bit halfway up from the Dead Sea and the Sea of Galilee. And from the mountains, it flows from the mountains, and then it goes down into the Jordan Valley. And this freshwater source was where God told um, Elijah to hide. And we're going to find out the reason he's going to have to hide. Because in the very next chapter, we're going to see that Ahab being so frustrated and angry with Elijah, because he's, he's, he's stopping the rain. For three and a half years, it didn't rain. No dew, no rain, and so that dries up a lot of stuff and creates a lot of problems. So Ahab is so frustrated with this prophet, he wants to kill him, and he's hunting him. So God tells Elijah, Elijah, get out of Samaria and go across the Jordan over into the east, and I want you to go lodge by the brook Cherith, and I'll take care of you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. And he went and he stayed at the brook Cherith, notice, which flows into the Jordan. And the ravens, notice, brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening. And he drank from the brook. Do you notice anything odd about this? <laughs> yeah, there's some things that are odd. Number one is a raven. God used an unclean, carrion-eating bird of prey to bring his servant food. In Leviticus, it tells us the, the kinds of things that they were allowed to eat, and this wasn't one of them. I mean, obviously, Elijah wasn't eating the raven, but the raven was an unclean bird. It ate off death. It picked the eyes off of the roadkill. It, it ate the, the blood and the, the, all the innards of everything on, you know, snakes and rodents and conies and all kinds of stuff. But notice what it tells us in Leviticus 11, verse 13. Because these are the Jewish dietary laws. And yet God was going to allow this filthy, unclean bird, Levitically speaking, of course, to feed his servant. It says, And these you, these you shall regard as an abomination among the birds. They shall not be eaten. They are an abomination. And notice these birds, they all have a similar thing. They're all prey. They're birds of prey, and they all eat meat. 
Among other things, most of them eat meat of some kind. So he says, you can't eat, don't eat the eagle, the vulture, the buzzard, the kite, the falcon after its kind, and every raven after its kind. And he goes on and lists a bunch of other birds, but I'll stop there. But it was an unclean bird, and and, um, it would be very supernatural for a raven to get meat or bread and not keep it for itself. You know, that's like putting a, a, a steak in front of two pit bulls. They're both going to go after it. It's very uh, supernatural for this bird of prey to bring him meat and to bring him bread. And yet, it was Levitically an unclean animal. Boy, that doesn't sound like God, does it? Why would he do something like that? In Job verse 38, verse 30, 41, it says, Who provides food for the raven? This is a question that God poses to Job and his three friends. Who provides food for the raven when its young ones cry to God and wander about for lack of food? Who does that? Who provides food for that raven? And the obvious answer is he does. God provides food for the raven. And now God is going to use ravens to provide food for his servant Elijah. Any normal Jew would be freaking out about this being fed by a raven. But notice, Elijah doesn't raise problems. Isn't it funny that even unclean birds from the Jewish, even them, God can use and and they will serve him and do his bidding. Funny how God can command the animal kingdom and they obey him, but not man. We are the rebels. God will say, I need you to do something. We're like, Mm, is there any money in it? Am I going to get rich off of it? Am I going to get popular? Am I going to get more up-thumb votes on Twitter? I'm not doing it. If I'm not getting paid, I'm not going to do it. But God can command the animal kingdom. Didn't he do that in Noah's day? (laughs) Two of every creature the federal heads of all these different animals, he brings them aboard the ark, and God called them, and they obeyed him. Good thing, too, because if they didn't, we'd be picking their uh, fossils out of the rocks, as is happening today. But notice in verse 7, So it happened after a while that the brook dried up. Yes, even the drought also touched Elijah's life as well, because it happened after a while, the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land, and that affected him too. And, and, and the thing we have to remember is that God will take care of us as well. And we're going to see God moving now into doing something even more interesting in Elijah's life. Notice in verse 8, Then the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Arise now and go to Zarephath, which belongs to Zidon, and dwell there. See, I have commanded a widow there to provide for you. This place called Zarephath, it literally needs, it means refinery. And usually, probably in this town, they did a lot of um, metal smelting where they would heat up the metal and smelt the metal and and purify it and stuff like that. That's what this name of this place means. And it's literally up in modern-day Lebanon right now between Sidon and Tyre. And it was right there in uh, in between them. And and so he says, Arise uh, and go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, dwell there. See, I've commanded a widow there to provide for you. And again, why did God provide, have him go to a Gentile city for provision? 
He had all of Israel before him. Why did he have him go to a Gentile city? And then a possible reason is Ahab is going to start hunting him, and God knows this. And I think Elijah knew when he left Ahab that day, I'm sure by looking at the countenance of the man as he's saying, there's going to be no rain for unless I say so. Sorry. And I can just see Ahab's face start to boil. And so God saw fit to have a Gentile widow take care of him. Unfortunately, nobody in Israel could be trusted to keep Elijah safe and take care of him. So what does God do? He sends him to the Gentiles. There's something about this that I really love. And notice this is in the Old Testament. There's so much about this that God is almost like hinting at the church. He's hinting at these Gentiles because is he just only a God for the Jews or is he a God to the Jews and the Gentiles? We know that he's a God of both. He's a God of both. And so he arose, verse 10, and he went to Zarephath. And when he had come to the city of the gate, indeed, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and says, please bring me a little water in a cup that I may drink. And as she was going to get it, he called to her and said, please bring me a morsel of bread also in your hand. And I can see her looking at him going, um... I can tell by the way you're dressed and your accent and everything about you, you're a Jew. Are you aware that there's a, there's a famine in the land and um, you're asking me to give you water and then give you something to eat? Is there something wrong with you, Elijah? Man of God? <laughs> there's something wrong with you? And so she said, notice what she said, as the Lord your God lives. I want you to pay close attention to what she says here and underline, as the Lord your God lives. Because now he's, she's basically saying, as the Lord your God lives, I do not have, any, I, I do not have um, any bread, only a handful of flour in a bin and a little oil in a jar. And see, I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may make a little fire and we're going to eat this little cake that we have left and that's all we've got and then we're going to die. And you can hear in her speech and what she's saying, the desperation, the futility, really, in her remark. And I want you to put verse 24. Off in the margin of your Bible there next to verse 12, just put verse 24 because it'll make sense as we get to it. Just put verse 24 because you're going to see something interesting happening to this woman in her dialogue and in her time that she has with Elijah Right now, it's his God, but we'll see later that it becomes her God as well because of the witness of Elijah. But notice in verse 13 as we go on. So Elijah said to her, do not fear, go and do as you have said, but make for me a small cake from it first and bring it to me and afterward make some for yourself and for your son. Now, doesn't that sound a little selfish? You know, the poor woman, she's there and she's got a a little bit of flour, a little bit of oil. She's going to make couple last cakes and that's all they've got and she's thinking I'm going to die after that because we're going to be starving to death and Elijah says well make them for me and bring them to me first every man in this room in your heart you know that that's wrong <laughs> right well, I mean would you do that to a, a widow a widow who God really cares for widows and especially the fatherless and here Elijah's saying give me first the food to eat that you are going to eat and do that first. 
And so she's got a decision to make. And everything within every male in this room is screaming, or ought to be, what is the matter with you, Elijah? Are you a selfish maniac? You know, what is your problem? And although people in the near and the Middle East, they are very hospitable, hospitable excuse me, but there was something here larger at play. Elijah was inviting this woman to exercise her faith in Jehovah God, in the God that, that he served, which she ultimately did. And in doing so, you know, it reminds me of Matthew. You might want to write this in the margin of your Bible too, Matthew chapter 6, verse 25 through 34, because I think it marries up to this verse very well. Matthew 6, verse 25 through 34. Let me read it to you. Because as, as he is you know, giving her the option to feed him first with all she had, she had to internalize back then, before Jesus even spoke it, what I'm about to share with you. Jesus said, Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you shall eat or what you shall drink, nor about your body, what you shall put on. Is not your life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. For they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they, Jesus said? Which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to his stature? And do you think that that woman was worrying, thinking that if I give these two cakes to Elijah, this is it, this is all we have. I can't just go to Wegmans and get another pound of flour. I can't go to, down to the, you know, little Italy down in, in New York and I can't buy a, a thing of olive oil. I can't. Which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to his stature? I think the Spirit of God was working on this woman even before Jesus spoke this. So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, and yet I say unto you that even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is today and tomorrow thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink? What shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you have need of them. And here's the verse. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. That woman at that moment had to make that decision. She decided to seek first the kingdom of God. She decided by faith to believe in Elijah's God. That's why she said, the Lord your God. She wasn't even saved at the moment. She wasn't even, uh, didn't have any faith in, her, in, in his God. But there was something happening here, and she just, she's like, you know what? I'm going to die anyway. <laughs> I might as well give it to you. But whatever her thought was, she goes ahead and gives it to Elijah. And then Elijah goes on in verse 14 back in our text down. He says, For thus says the Lord God of Israel, The bin of flour shall not be used up, nor shall the jar of oil run dry until the day of the Lord sends rain on the earth. And so she obeyed Elijah, and God fulfilled his plan. For him and Elijah, uh, I'm sorry, God, um, she obeyed Elijah, and, and, and she fulfilled God's plan for him, and Elijah also fulfilled God's plan for her and her son as well. Yes, even a Gentile. I love that, don't you? And even in the Old Testament, 
It's written for us. And so verse 15, so she went away and did according to the word of Elijah, and she and her and he and her household ate for many days. Notice as a result of her obedience, the Lord kept his part of the bargain. You can always count God to keep his end of the deal when we're obedient. It doesn't mean that you're not going to sweat a little bit, but he will take care of us. And so all of this noise in the world about, you know, a coming, you know, we're in a recession. I don't know if you knew that, but, you know, uh, you know, everyone's getting all uptight about this stuff. Hey, you know, you, you can store up if you want, but God is going to take care of you. There's no need to fear. The same what I just read to you in Matthew chapter 6 is true for us, by the way. Take no thought. It doesn't mean that you can't take precautions. There's nothing wrong with any of that. But you can never outgive God. And that's really what she did. She gave to Elijah. And in a sense, what she did was saying, I trust you, God. I don't even know you yet, but I'm going to trust you, and I'm going to give this to him because I know he's your servant And Lord, this promise that you've given me through him, I can only hope that that's going to come to pass. And it did. It literally came to pass. And um, so the bin of flour was not used up, nor did the jar of oil run dry, according to the word of the Lord, which he spake by Elijah. And um, it's interesting. We're not going to go there, but Jesus mentions this woman in this account. Um, Off to the margin of your Bible, again, right in Luke chapter 4. Verses 24 through 30, because Jesus mentions this Gentile woman, this Gentile widow, what she did to Elijah, how she gave the cakes and gave everything to him out of faith. And God says, There's, I haven't seen faith like that in Israel. And yet this Gentile widow exhibited more faith. And, and as a result of, that, of saying that, when Jesus was in the synagogue at Nazareth, they got so mad at him because God, you know, Jesus said, you know, I haven't seen so great faith. But remember that one widow up in Zarephath, how she did that? I haven't seen such great faith not even in Israel. And they got so mad at him, they were going to throw him off the, 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 the cliff in Nazareth. And Jesus was able to get away from them. But notice now in verse 17. Now it happened after these things that the son of the woman who owned the house, she became, or he, he became sick. And his sickness was so serious that there was no breath left in him. Yes, he died. He died. There was no breath left in him. And so she said to Elijah, What have I have to do with you, O man of God? Have you come to make me to come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to kill my son? Evidently, there was something that had happened in her life, perhaps some sin issue of her past that caused her to believe that God was going to strike her son because of what she did. The Bible doesn't tell us what happened to her husband, why was she a widow, and the details about her life, we really don't know. And he said to her, give me your son. And so he took him out of her arms, so he must have been young enough to where the mother could hold the son, and then Elijah could hold the son. And, he, and Elijah takes the young man from her and goes into the upper room, which in the houses in those days, they had uh, other rooms on top of their, uh, the, the top of their uh, place. And that's where Elijah stayed. And so he came to the upper room where he was staying, laid him on his own bed. And then he cried out to the Lord. He cried out to Jehovah. 
Again, whenever you see L-O-R-D in all caps, it only means one thing. It means Yahweh. It means Jehovah. So he cried out to the Lord, O Lord my God, have you also brought tragedy on this widow with whom I lodge by killing her son? Yes. He is, he's dead. The son is dead. And so Elijah stretched himself out on the child three times. And, and now this is something I don't really understand, but he literally laid on top of the child three times. And, and whether it was the compression of his body, the warmth, I don't know what it was. It was a miracle regardless. But he did that three times and he said, Oh Lord God, I pray, let this child's soul come back to him because the soul of the child had left him Right? So the child died, right? <laughs> Why do I bring this up? Because people say, well, the child was just unconscious and somehow make this not really a miracle at all. Well, the Bible says his breath left him, his spirit left him, and God says his spirit will come back into him, and, he, and it did. So I'm either going to believe God or I'm going to believe some fancy pants at Yale who thinks he knows better than God. I'm going to choose God and not the fancy pants at Yale. Amen? Amen? Always choose God more than the fancy pants at whatever college and of any subject. Choose God's wisdom over the wisdom of man, always. Verse 22 says, Then the Lord heard the voice of Elijah, and the soul of the child came back to him, and he revived and this is the first recorded instance, evidently, in Scripture where somebody is restored to life. Now, it doesn't mean that he was resurrected like Jesus was resurrected. Okay, that's a whole different resurrection because when this young man was revived, it just means his, his heart began to beat and his lungs began to fill up with oxygen again and his brain began working again. But when Jesus was resurrected, three days after his death on the cross... That was a brand new, different body. Do you understand? Even Lazarus, the Lazarus, when, when Lazarus rose from the grave, when Jesus summoned him to come up, he didn't have his resurrection body either. Lazarus and this young man would have to die at some point in the future, and they would be laid into the ground and become dust. So then the woman said to Elijah, verse 24, Now by this, now here's the verse. You might want to put verse 12 off to the next of, the, of verse 24 here because remember how I said in verse 12, she said, And the Lord your God? Well, now look what she says. The woman said to Elijah, Now by this I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is the truth. So it sounds like very obvious here that now... It's the Lord. God is the Lord, her God now too, right? Because now she realizes that Elijah was speaking the truth to her and that won her heart. I believe this woman is in glory right now. And this sign or miracle that Elijah performed, it confirmed the word of the Lord which he spoke to her. And there's always something important about miracles that, you, that we have to understand is the, the miracle always comes after the word of God has been spoken. It confirms the word of God, not the other way around. 
And isn't that the right thing to do? I mean, if the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword, and if the word of God is uh, wonderful as it is, everything else has to support it, not the other way around. So, you know, the word of God doesn't support miracles. No, the miracles support, validate the word of God. The word of God is the most important thing. And so when Elijah says, your son is going to live, the miracle confirmed that. It's always that way, not the other way around. It's important to know that. So I believe that God sent Elijah to this widow in Zarephath for at least four reasons. And the first one is not only to provide uh, for, well, let me just read it. For four reasons, I believe God sent him to this woman in Zarephath, this Gentile widow. Number one, to provide for Elijah's needs. The brook dried up in the Cherith Brook, and so God says, no, I want you to go about 80 or 90 miles, go north, and then go over uh, west, over to the seashore, over to Zarephath, and a woman in Zarephath is going to provide for you there. So he brings, her, brings him to her to provide for his needs, and also to provide miraculously flour and oil for the three of them. So now it's not just about Elijah's needs anymore, it's also about Certainly him, but the woman and her son. And then thirdly, to encourage faith in, in, in God and salvation to the woman and her son. It's funny, God, you know, Elijah couldn't go to somebody of the Jews. They probably would have turned him in to Ahab. But no, he's got to go outside of his own country, this prophet. Prophet is not accepted, except, you know, not even in his own country. So he's got to go out, outside, and then he's accepted. And the same thing happens here, like happened to Jesus. He goes up there, and he encourages the faith of this woman. And fourthly, to be there when her son became ill and died. Because whether Elijah was there or not, that young man would have fallen sick and, got, and died anyway. And can you see God's providence and how he ministered to this woman? I think she got the better end of the deal. Think about it. The flour and the oil never ceased during that drought. Her son gets brought back to life. Her faith in God is, uh, is brand new, and now she knows who he is. And all she had to do, all she had to do is step out in faith and say, okay, I'm going to give you these two cakes or however many they were and that's all we got. But you know what? I believe you. I don't get it. I don't understand it, but I'm willing to give this God of Israel a try. So she gives him the cakes and do you realize that was her part and look what she got in result. I love that, don't you? And uh, there was a verse that I wanted to read to you earlier. And we'll end with this, and then we'll take communion together. Speaking that you can't outgive God, God reprimanded the people of Israel because of their lack in tithes and offerings. And there was a time in Malachi where God kind of brought them to task with it because they began to think about their own selves and they stopped giving to the Lord. And so, it's, and so God speaks to them through the prophet Malachi, and it's in Malachi 3, chapter, uh, chapter 3, verse 8. It says, Will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. And this is God speaking. But you say, In what way have we robbed you, God? 
And then he replies, in tithes and offerings, you are cursed with a curse, for you have robbed me, even this whole nation. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And try me now in this, says the Lord of hosts. And here is the verse I really wanted to get to. See if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out upon you such blessing that there will not be room enough to save it. If you give to me, I will pour out for you a blessing much greater. And isn't that what we saw in this woman? All she had to do was give the cakes, something very simple. She had to exercise faith, no doubt. And her life was on the line, her and her son, but she was willing to give it to the Lord and trust him. And I think that's a real great message for us today, especially in the world that we're living in. Be careful what you watch on YouTube. There's all kinds of nuts out there telling you that the world, you know, just be really careful. God is going to take care of you. Trust him more than anything. But notice what God says. And and didn't she benefit from this verse? Didn't God fulfill the spirit behind what he just said here in Malachi? See if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out on you such blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it. They had plenty of food for that time. Her son was brought back to life. She was, salvation came into her life. She was now a child of God and her son. Believers now. She got so much more than what she invested in. She gave a little and God gave her a great deal amount more. And I've noticed that in my own life. And I've got to be honest with you, it just brings me to tears sometimes. He hasn't changed. He's true to his word. And you don't know it until you experience it. And many of you have experienced it. And be encouraged in that because God is a great God. He's an awesome God. He loves you so much. He just wants you to trust him more than we do. He wants us to give to him our whole hearts. I don't think he really cares about the money, okay? I know that in context here, when in Malachi, it was talking about tithes and offerings, but I'm not here to lay some trip on you. I'm just saying that sometimes I can be so stingy and, and, and not really be a, a giving person. And it doesn't necessarily have to be money either. It could be of my time, of, of being able to, to take time out of my life and minister to somebody else, to help somebody, maybe even give them some money if, if they're really having a hard time. Uh, you know, within reason, of course, you got to be careful about these things. But to help somebody, and he's always been faithful. I've seen it in my life. I've seen it in so many other people's lives. You know what? We serve a God that is just outstanding. Isn't he outstanding? Can I get an amen? Amen. He's an awesome God, and he's never going to cease because he cannot change. He remains the same yesterday, today, and forever. The way he was here is the way he'll be three months from now. Whatever happens in our country, he is going to be there, and he is going to take care of us. And we all we have to do is trust him and obey him and love him and worship him. Worship him who made heavens and the earth, Worship him who called all things into existence. We serve a great and loving God. Be encouraged. Be encouraged and love him with all of your heart. Get lost in him. Let's do that. Let's get lost in him.
and learn to trust him again. You know, you think about the communion, when we take communion, it's something that we, uh, it's very easy to, to do and just kind of go through the rote of it, you know. But, you know, you, you think about the one that we're having communion with, we're communing with, with God. And, and when we take this bread and cup, we are coming into agreement that what he did on the cross was sufficient. Because we ought not to take communion unless we believe that Jesus' blood was sufficient to pay for my sin and, and that it was, it was sufficient enough to save my soul. If I don't believe that, then I shouldn't take this. Because really what it is is hypocrisy. For me to take this and what these symbols mean, that's all they are, are symbols. For me to take it, without the understanding of what it is, what it signifies is, really doesn't do us any good. But for those of us who are here, and I look out at your faces, I know you. We've been fellowshipping for years. And what a blessing it is that we have Jesus in common. We may be a different skin color. We may have different demographics. We may... Some may be really wealthy, some not so much. We've got everything in between and every, everything you can name it. And I love the diversity that we have in this fellowship. It doesn't matter what country we came from. We are all one human race. But we can gather together like this and we have the greatest thing in common. The world has nothing in common. Satan and his hordes of demons, they have nothing other than chaos. Wherever they go, they bring chaos. But yet here in the church of God, we have one head and we fall in line under that one and I believe that what Jesus did on the cross was sufficient I believe his body was broken just as he said it was it was broken for us on our behalf so that we wouldn't be broken he took the full brunt of that and it wasn't even just so much the the physical beating anybody can be physically beat to death no, but it's what nobody could see. Because when he gave his body and when he gave his blood on the cross, these tokens that they represent, what nobody could see was what was happening. The reality of what was really happening. And that was the very Son of God, God in the flesh, was making an atonement of his perfect blood in exchange for me. You can't see that. While he hung there on the cross, all bloodied and beaten, nobody could see that. But when he says, Father, it is finished. <laughs> and when he said it is finished, he literally meant it. And then he, he dismissed his spirit. He was in control from the very beginning. He was no martyr. But yet the Father, God the Father, rejected his son for a, a moment, for a time. We don't know how long that was, but he turned away from him, something Jesus has never experienced before. That, my friends, is the most significant part of the crucifixion, was the fact that his soul was made an atonement, not his, you know, just the fact that he was beaten. I mean, that was part of it, don't get me wrong, but the real thing that happened was that he made his soul an atonement for us, and that alone is what saves us. By believing in him, we believe in that, and so that's why we take the bread and the cup.
So let's take the bread together. Jesus said, this is my body which is broken for you. Take and eat. And then he took the cup and he passed it around. He said, this is the blood of the new covenant. Take, drink of it. So let's do that. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, 3, or 1 Corinthians 11, I believe it is. He said, we do this to remember the Lord's death until he comes. And I don't know about you, but I'm hoping he comes very soon. Anytime now. Anytime. Lord, would you come now? There is nothing in my life that I want more than to see Jesus face to face. There's nothing. I'm being honest with you. Seeing my daughter and walking her down the aisle someday is the dream of every father. You know, to be able to take my daughter's hand and lead her down to the aisle to the man she's going to marry, whoever, you know. All those are good things, and they are. They're really good things. But nothing compares to seeing Christ. And I would encourage you just to really get your head around that and love it. Because, folks, he... When we see him, everything else is going to fade away. It'll be like a distant memory. It doesn't mean that the things here aren't good, they're not loving, and they're wonderful. They are. But in comparison to what we're going to experience is incredibly glorious. I don't even know a fraction of the reality of that, but I'm looking forward to it. Because I know it's real and I know it's coming. Do you believe that? Let's stand. Lord, we thank you that we can believe in these, uh, these things because, Lord, you have died to secure heaven for us. That where you are, we might also be. Lord, we look forward to that. We can't wait to see you. And Lord, as we consider what we read tonight in uh, the 17th chapter of 1 Kings, Lord, and the the, the step of faith this widow woman took. Lord, and, and what she received on the other end was many times over what she had given, Lord. Help us to never misunderstand and help us never to forsake sacrifice. Help us not to forsake sacrifice. Because we know at the center of worship is sacrifice. So we thank you. Pray that you'd encourage us in it, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.